From ZMB Media and Jewish Community Services, this is Hooked, stories of loss, love, and most importantly, hope. I'm your host, Elizabeth Piper, a health educator at Jewish Community Services. Hooked started as an exploration into the world of addiction, a world where so many live, yet so few are willing to reveal. Previously, we heard from addicts in recovery, family members who have lost spouses, moms, and sons to the disease of addiction, and parents who are navigating the treatment and recovery world with their children. Now we will shift our focus to a specific class of drugs that is killing more Americans than car accidents annually. Opioids, including painkillers, heroin, and fentanyl, care not what race or gender or socioeconomic group you subscribe to. Once hooked on them, an addict's life's purpose is simple, to get more opioids. As I dove deeper into the realm of opioid addiction, a few alarming statistics stuck out to me. While the opioid crisis is affecting all types of people, the fastest growing population is women. According to research conducted by the FDA Office on Women's Health, between 1999 and 2015, the rate of deaths from prescription opioid overdoses increased 471% among women, nearly double that of men. Heroin deaths among women increased at more than twice the rate than among men. But why? What are the differences between men and women in active addiction? Do women use for different reasons than men? Are women more likely to be prescribed medication from their doctors? What about biological and social influences? Traumas from their childhood? I wanted to better understand the impact opioids have specifically on women that might begin to explain the rapid rise of opioid use, overdoses, and deaths in our country. In this episode, we'll first hear from women in recovery, Jess, Claire, Marcy, and Emma. When we think of women addicted to heroin or prescription opioids, we often picture someone who comes from a broken family, has limited resources, and ends up experiencing homelessness on the streets. But this isn't always the case. In order to paint a broader, more accurate picture of women and opioid addiction, I asked our guest what their upbringing was like and what role, if any, alcohol and drugs played in their families. Nothing stands out about my childhood. You know, I went to school. I have an older brother. I have two parents that are still married to this day. But I mean, I've always gone to a private school up until fifth grade. Um, it was co-ed, and then I went to an all-girls school. I do know that drinking has always been around in my family. From a very early age, I was like, oh, that looks fun. You know, like people laugh when they're drinking. I don't know if I really noticed that at the time, but now afterwards, looking back, over drinking and alcoholism runs very strong my mom's side of the family. It's very prevalent. It's it takes shapes in really weird forms. You know, there's been hospital stays now that I've been older and growing up on my mom's side for like Christmases or birthdays, whatever the event might be, everyone would like black out. And then in high school, I wasn't in trouble for drinking. You know, we could have wine and beer at the dinner table. They weren't okay with us drinking and driving. So if we were gonna drink, they wanted us to stay out. But, you know, back to like my Growing up, um, I had everything I could have ever wanted and needed. 
I also, you know, came from an upper middle class white family. I'm one of four, and I will say that I did grow up um, with an alcoholic father. And growing up, like I didn't recognize that as, oh, you know, my dad's an alcoholic. I recognized it as my dad's having a rough day. He'd rather have a drink, and that looks like a relaxing thing for him to do, and it's a way for him to end his day and sort of you know, distress and would rather go to the den and have a drink than really interact with our family at the family table. I also grew up with a family that everything was very much like unspoken. From a very early age on, I remember that I had to deal with, you know, any sort of issues on my own and the solutions I had to come up with myself. I don't think that that makes me an alcoholic. I do believe that I was also born with this disease. I do believe that I have, you know, an affliction. And I guess I also looked at it as it was kind of a status thing. You know, for me, like in high school growing up, like if you were cool, you were drinking. I really wasn't cool. So I didn't always get to be part of the parties and everything like that. So when I did finally get to college and I did start to drink, I felt like I was part of something. I grew up watching my mom in active addiction. So that was something that was definitely overwhelming even before I knew exactly what was happening. I just knew that things weren't, things weren't right. My parents had gotten divorced. We were living with my mom and then all of a sudden my mom had lost her house and we didn't live with her anymore. And then we didn't really see her anymore. And that kind of stuff really weighed heavily on me, even though I couldn't even comprehend like the extent of everything that was happening. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what triggered my use of opiates because it was just so appealing to not have to worry about anything. I never felt like I was a part of. I mean, I always felt like I wanted to be, like I was like a people pleaser. You know, I wanted people, I, I had an urge, like um, a desire for so long for people to love me and to be proud of me. You know, I craved that so much. You know, in eighth grade, something happened to me. I got roofied and um, at just my friend's party. First year at this all-girls private school, mind you, and some rumors went flying, and I just took it and soared. And um, to this day, my dad doesn't know about it, to my knowledge. I guess, you know, for me, what really took off, especially, you know, my um, college years was, you know, the things that I had tried to block out for a very long time really started to kind of re-trigger itself and find memories coming back. And the difficulty with all that is, again, like, I grew up in a don't ask, kind of don't tell household where if you had a problem, you dealt with it yourself. You know, everybody else in my family had their own issues. Everybody else had to deal with everything on their own. That's how I always felt. And I never wanted to be a problem because I had a lot of issues with my older sister. My older brother had his own issues. My twin brother had a lot of issues. So I always wanted to be the one that no one had to worry about. Mine started, I guess my grandmother, um, she had a lot of health problems. So there's definitely pills around in the medicine cabinets. Mm -hmm. And that's going all the way back probably in the 80s, 90s. Easily it was around. And um, once in a while, you know, like if you had your menstrual cycle or something, you know, my grandmother would give me a pill. And I always did feel so much better. And the pain went away right away. Alcohol and drugs were present in the homes of each woman. From a very young age, they, like so many of us, unconsciously began to make associations with substance use. 
Have a bad day at work? Pour a drink. Celebrating a holiday? Pour a drink. In pain from your period? Take this pill. None of them could have imagined that these associations paired with genetics would put them at greater risk for addiction. I was curious though, how in the world did such a heavy duty class of drugs like opioids enter their story? My first ever experience was probably when I was a junior in high school. I had tried a Percocet. It made me sick, I didn't get high. I don't necessarily count that because I did it, but it, it did nothing for me. And then fast forward to when I was 18 or 19, I was diagnosed with gallstones and had to get my gallbladder taken out. And after surgery, they prescribed me, I think it was Percocets. And that was when I was first really like introduced to them. I probably didn't even need them, honestly. So those pills lasted me maybe a couple of days. Maybe like the first day I took them as prescribed and then second day, feeling a little bored. One made me feel good, let's see what two does. In 1996, I ended up having a really bad car accident. In a hydroplane, I took out the a pole, and I, at the time, we didn't have that seatbelt law, so I almost went through the windshield, but I messed my neck up. And I ended up having like deteriorated disc in my neck, and I ended up you know, having surgery to have the disc replaced in my neck. You know, I started going to doctors when I started having the pain. And first they were give me, you know, like some Percocets or something. And then I was also trying to go to, you know, physical therapy, acupuncture. I was trying everything to get the pain to stop. And, and of course, as time went on, you know, one pill just wasn't enough. You know, I'd have short, you know, short periods of time where I'd have like 30 or 60 pills at a time. So then I guess, it, you know, my tolerance started getting so high. And then I started going to the doctors. And at the time, doctors weren't communicating with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't know about, you know, what doctors you see. So it was easy after a while. I started with one doctor, but then I could end up, you know, going to three different ones that didn't know what I was doing. Emma and Marcy, like hundreds of thousands of other men and women before them, were prescribed opioids to help them with pain after their surgeries. Neither of them was given a warning by their doctor of how addictive prescription opioid medications are, nor did either woman receive assistance with pain management during the time she was prescribed the medication. Instead, they were both handed a signed white piece of paper, which would be traded in for a small orange bottle containing a substance that would forever change their lives. For many, this is how opioid dependence begins. White pieces of paper, black ink, and complete ignorance. For Jess, it was a different story. Because I was drinking, drugs came into my story. Like, for me and so many people, it's 2019, like, they were glued together. <laughs> so my boyfriend was doing these pain pills, um, Park 30s, Blues, Smurfs, Roxies, whatever you want to call them. There's plenty of names. And um, he, this was when I was at that big university down south. We were, it was in my apartment, my second year. He was sitting there cutting it up, and I really wanted to try it. He was like, no, I don't want you to. Um, I was like, please. So, as I said, a perk 30, meaning 30 milligrams, he cut like a seventh of it, an eighth of it. Like, not a lot, not a lot of milligrams. I was so damn sick. Oh my God, 
the amount I was throwing up. I could not stay awake. I was like, what is this? And mind you, I was used to drinking and then doing coke, like staying up, you know, like I was like these uppers. Um, I mean, I did Xanax, all this stuff that like to calm down. And here I was trying this thing that I was like, whoa. I think like the next night I tried it again because I saw this effect that was produced by these Percocets that uh, my boyfriend was having at the time. And I didn't understand. So I kept like working my way up and I still felt sick and I don't think I threw up that time. And um, it was so crazy. My addiction wanted more. Mm. My mind was saying, no, 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 you don't feel good. Like this isn't pleasurable at the time. I had to work up a tolerance for it to become pleasurable. And then that tolerance, I would just like nod out. And for some people that might not know what that means, like think of like you are so tired in the morning or even at night and like you're fighting to keep your eyes open, you know, like that was the goal that I got to. And I loved it. Side note, I remember back in high school um, in health class, they gave us this book about every, like all the drugs and the side effects and like basically like stay away from drugs. I was like, this is amazing. This is like the Bible (laughs) to what I can get fucked up on. This is so great. I remember I had a black coffee. Like, I remember everything about this book. Yeah. I don't think that was normal. The word addict comes from the Latin word addictus, which was used to describe a person who became enslaved back in the 16th century. While the definition has evolved since then, those who battle opioid use disorder best describe their experience as just that. They were slaves to the drug. New research is also showing that women experience more intense cravings with their addictions than men, which often means putting themselves in rather vulnerable positions to get their next fix. I've always been kind of like a worrier, like an anxious person, and to feel like I don't have to worry about anything was just like an all over deep breath. It was nice. I enjoyed not feeling so worried about everything all the time. And I would say within a month, I had like a physical addiction to it to the point where if I was not doing them, I was getting sick. And then that just continued for probably six months. By that time, I could no longer have like the supply that I needed to stay not getting sick. And at that point, I made the switch to heroin. I was sick. I was really sick and I couldn't find any Percocet. And it was, well, do the heroin or continue to be sick for days. So, and I remember having a second thought, like I had mentioned this before, I asked the person who brought this idea to my attention, like, is this sketchy? (laughs) Which looking back on is just, it's absolutely ridiculous. Of course it is sketchy, of course (laughs) it is. But that was kind of the last time I had any like doubt that that was a good idea because after that it was everything went out the window like there was no thought about is this a good idea or not after that and she said oh yeah it's fine it's fine you won't be sick anymore Mm -hmm. so that was that was really all it took I got roofied two more times in college but I was like I was in a sorority and so many of us did um And I shouldn't say that lightly. I just said that like it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. I don't think half of us were aware of it until we were like, wait, we only had two drinks and we don't remember anything. Alcohol has been my best friend, my lover that never left my story. But um, as I tell my story, I'm going to introduce other substances. And at this point, pain pills and like Xanax, other pills started entering my story. And I met this 
dealer named Rocky. I don't know how I met him. Um, I was this young, blonde, white um, at a southern university and then like traveling to the hood of the southern state to find dealers in my white Jeep and I'm like, you know, I'm going to find someone. Met this man, Rocky, and um, him and his wife, Cynthia. Oh my God. I was a slave to the drugs that I was going to buy. A slave that I would go to these places. Very, very dangerous. And it was, it was just obvious from the outside if looking in, like, what is she doing here? You know, it's obvious she's a university student. Not really meant for this area. There's not college housing around this area. There's not like a grocery store. But when I would go, what was quote unquote required of me in order to get the drugs that I wanted from Rocky, um, I was putting, I, he would not ask this from a man, I don't think. Um, so some of the things I had to do with him and his wife to get the drugs and still pay for them with money was really messed up. You know, in the act of that, a photo got taken of me from this dealer and it was used over my head to blackmail me. Like, if you don't do X, Y, and Z with Cynthia and I, this is going to go out. And at this point, I was dating someone. And at this point, he was also meeting the dealer with me. And um, he didn't go to the school with me. He's from my hometown and he would visit me. And, um, you know, so I was scared that that would get out. And that was also a really big part of me leaving college. I was so depressed and I was so scared. I also progressed into like, you know, cocaine into pills and pain pills were basically what led me to my first rock bottom, which I would say. And um, like becoming a slave to that, I also allowed myself to be a slave to anything, which included, you know, selling my body. For this drug dealer, I became, you know, if I, at the time I was a cocktail waitress, um, but I would be selling drugs in order to get drugs. But if I was selling drugs, I also had to sell myself if that's what this customer wanted. And we would be locked in bathrooms in this very well-to-do Wall Street um, steakhouse. You know, I would be cocktail waitressing, selling drugs, and then allowing men to take advantage of me in the bathroom. While initially people with opioid use disorder chase the calming sensation or euphoric feeling opioids offer, eventually their use becomes less about the high and more about avoiding the low, that is dope sickness. The physical and psychological dependence on opioids is so intense that to live without them becomes not only unfathomable, but also seemingly impossible. What does dope sickness feel like for those of us who have never experienced it in the best way possible? <laughs> Bring that to life for me. Absolutely awful, awful. Like your legs feel like they are just flailing and they hurt and you wanna throw up and you need to go to the bathroom and you're sweating and it's just like one of the worst feel worse than when I had gallstones. Like mm. it was awful. <laughs> okay. It was terrible. So that's interesting, right? Because the <laughs> medication that was sort of the aftermath of, okay, you had surgery, let's help mm -hmm. you heal. Mm -hmm. This turned into a bigger problem than the gallstones to begin yes, with. Yes. So then heroin, how mm -hmm. did that, um, did you start snorting heroin or injecting? Yeah, so initially I was just snorting it, but that only lasted about a week because the person that I was getting it through, she was injecting it and I would kind of watch her and I would see her face as she did it. And I'm like, mm, yeah, that, that's what I want. I want that. Once you put that into your arm, like there's no wait time. It's just all over you instantly. Mm -hmm. And then the whole like getting everything ready turns into like 
a ritual and that became part of it too like finding the perfect place to park and finding like a good vein it it just everything about it almost immediately was like just seemed like perfection <laughs> to me which sounds so sick to say but no, that's, that's really how it was like I could be so sick and as soon as I started that ritual as soon as I started like laying all my stuff out I already started to feel better like I hadn't even injected the wow. drugs yet and I was already starting to feel better because I could anticipate what was about to happen I was just thinking back about how much one pill just had so much control over me yeah and it just I was just reminiscing you know thinking about you know, the, I haven't thought about that for so long. I really haven't in recovery, like, written about it on step work. Mm. You know, about how much of a stronghold that it had on me and the obsession and the compulsion. Right. And just, I remember, you know, with the pills, it was just like I'd be, as soon as I got a bottle of pills, I started taking them, and it was like I was counting them, and I was just thinking about, you know, my next fix and stuff. Yeah. It sounds like it really, it just becomes your sole purpose. Now, I like how Emma said that about the um, ritual, because it really is. Never thought of it that way yeah. before. Um, I guess, it, you know, I was so oblivious to everything that was happening around me. It was all about me and getting and using and wanting more. So I didn't pay attention to, for a long time, what was happening around me. Mm -hmm. You know, I started losing, like, the desire to, you know, any of my hobbies. I just didn't, I, you know, I, everything that I had loved, I started to lose. I didn't care. I did not care about anything. I did not care about you. I did not care about myself. You know, all I cared about was how am I going to have that euphoric feeling that I once had, you know, the first time that I picked up a drug because that's really what I'm chasing. That's what I chased for 10 years was this euphoric feeling that I, for me, like that's what opiate, uh, opiates were. I mean, it was euphoria. I mean, I always equate it to this movie um, that I've seen with Bradley Cooper <laughs> called Limitless where you yes. just literally feel like you can do anything. The world is your oyster. And I was like, I want this feeling all the time. A national trial suggests psychological and emotional distress have been identified as risk factors for hazardous opioid use among women. It's no surprise then that Jess, Emma, and Claire, who collectively experienced sexual abuse, addiction in the family, and an overall feeling of unworthiness growing up, would be at greater risk for addiction. While these adverse childhood experiences don't cause addiction in women, they do make them more vulnerable to it, especially if they are already genetically predisposed to an addiction themselves. After living through these traumas followed by the hell of opioid addiction, I wanted to know how these women found their way into recovery. The rock bottom that really stuck out would be the second time I overdosed, which was in my dad's house and my other brother, who is uh, maybe, I think, four years, four years younger than me, found me, mm. like, almost dead. In the house. Yes, yes. Um, my friend was waiting for me. We were going to walk to, like, the gas station or something to get cigarettes. So he was standing up the street from my house. My mom had called me. I didn't answer. So then she called my dad, who called out to me, Emma, Emma. I didn't answer because I was lying on the floor and for whatever reason my brother put down the video game downstairs and got up to come and check because he had heard my dad calling for me and I wasn't responding. So he went to open the door and couldn't open the door because I was slumped up against it. Mm. 
So my dad had to like drag my body out into the living room and give me CPR and they called 911. So then this is the house I had lived in my whole life. I know all of the neighbors and here's the ambulance coming. They're carting me out and as they took me out, I remember them saying, it looks like you did a little too much heroin tonight. And there's like all of my neighbors standing right. around. So that was definitely- so the EMTs were saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was very shameful. It was horrifying. It was definitely eye-opening. I did continue to use for a while after that, um, but it definitely really like stuck out to me. We didn't know where to go to get help. I didn't know what to do. Actually, I didn't even think about like even going to a counselor or anything. I just didn't know where to go. They really hadn't experienced anything like this before, so they really didn't know what to tell me. Okay. The day before my sobriety date, I got arrested by seven U.S. Marshals, and that was like my bottom. Um, you know, the next day was my sobriety date in jail. <laughs> like, you know, I'm the most grateful I've ever been for that night. Um, you know, those seven U.S. Marshals were my God, like who I call, or my higher power, who I call God today, like <laughs> coming to get me. Um, but some of the times I got arrested, the paperwork got sent to my parents' house because that was my address in the system, and that's how they knew I was alive. Um, one of the times I showed up to court, and my brother and my mom were there, and that was hard for them, I think. Um, the other times I didn't show up to court, I don't know if they did. You know, that's how I got some warrants on my record. That's what happens, you know. What's an FTA? Yeah. <laughs> it's better if I just don't go to court. That's yeah. what my justification was. No, right. It's not better. Um, and the last thing I, I'll say is, like, they started planning a funeral for me. families through is heart-wrenching. At the same time, I do consider it to be one of the gifts in sobriety of when you're able to hear uh, exactly how your actions have had the repercussions on people and to know that you don't want to do that again to them. For my mom, in her impact letter, she literally wrote to me that, I love you, Claire, but I have to put my love for you in a jar somewhere in the back of my heart where I can't touch it and where it can't hurt me anymore. To hear that from your own mother is just heartbreaking. Uh, to know that these people that you haven't cared about at all have loved you through the darkest parts of your life, it gives you hope that you want to live again, that you want to be a part of that and you want to give that back to them. It gives you hope that your life is worth living. All the women you just heard from fortunately found their way into sobriety and recovery and are flourishing in their lives and reconnected to loved ones. How can we best support women who have become statistics in the opioid crisis? How can we meet them with empathy, understanding, and resources rather than judgment and shame? We hope that by listening to these stories, you've found comfort in knowing that this conversation is being brought to light. A common phrase used in recovery meetings is, we're only as sick as our secrets. It has been our vision for Hooked to begin sharing the secrets that addicts often carry. The shame, the abuse, 
the isolation that accompanies the disease of addiction. It is in bringing light to these dark truths that we find healing. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We invite you to listen to the other episodes in the series. If you or a loved one are suffering from addiction, you're not alone. There are resources that can help. Visit our website, ifiknew.org. Click on the Get Help tab for listings of local Baltimore resources, as well as leading national ones. These podcasts are brought to you by Jewish Community Services in Baltimore, an agency of The Associated, and the Jewish Women's Giving Fund. We are grateful for their support, as well as the generosity of other funders who make JCS Prevention Education programming possible.